And erectile dysfunction is usually a condition of poor blood flow. It's a problem with the blood vessels in the penis. So when a man starts to notice that he's getting weak erections or is having difficulty keeping his erections, that means most likely that the little arteries in his penis are starting to get clogged off, which means that the arteries all throughout his body are starting to get clogged off. It's just that because they're bigger everywhere else, he's not feeling it. But give it more time and that same process will have clogged off his coronary arteries, his heart arteries enough where he will get that chest pain or that heart attack. So that's why erectile dysfunction, which is a decreased flow of blood to the penis, was the canary in the coal mine that, hey, you better check yourself. There's decreased blood flow everywhere. And if you catch it early now, you might have a chance to prevent it or reverse it. And the other thing that's very, uh, I would say, important about this early warning sign for men in particular is that at least in the United States, the culture is that men hardly ever come into the doctor after you know, they're done with their sports physical exams you know, by the time they're age 18. For many of these men, when they come in to see their doctor because their penis isn't working and that's driven them finally to get in to see the doctor, nothing else has. You know, They might've twisted their ankle or cut themselves or what are, or maybe they have a chest pain that they've been ignoring, but the pain is not working. That brings them into the doctor's office. And that may be the first time that they get an evaluation, that they get some blood tests done, they get an EKG, that they, that they actually discover, wow, you actually have significant cardiovascular disease and we got to get you uh, under treatment. We got to do some changes in your life and your diet, et cetera, before your first sign of heart disease, which is often sudden death. Sudden death is often the first symptom men have of heart disease. But this canary in the coal mine, this erectile dysfunction, this penis that we are so concerned with will get us into the doctor in time. Welcome to Happy Pair Podcast. Before we start, let's talk about nitric oxide. Dave. Okay, nitric oxide. You wonder, what's nitric oxide? Well, if you clicked on this podcast, you'll see that it's by a urologist. Nitric oxide is super important for dilating your blood vessels and improving blood flow to every part of your body's So would it improve your- if I had erectile dysfunction and I got loads of nitric oxide, would it improve my erection? Day? Yes, it would. That's according to Dr. Aaron. And really, nitric oxide is super important. You get it by eating lots of fruit and veg and plant-based foods. And it just so happens our new book, The Veg Box, is all about getting you to eat more fruit and Quick veg. one. What um, very famous medicine do men tend to take to help erections? One of the greatest selling drugs of all time is Viagra. And Viagra is aimed at increasing your nitric oxide valve to be open for longer releasing nitric oxide which we learned is a gas yeah so anyway back to our book the veg box we've taken the 10 most common veg and we've done them 10 ways using 10 ingredients or less it's very practical easy accessible using everyday ingredients and it's all about getting you to eat more fruit and veg that are high in phytonutrients and high in nitric oxide so uh yeah helping you or your loved ones have firmer erections yes anyway link down below to learn more and to order our book which will support this podcast and hopefully help you in many different ways thank you okay welcome back uh thank you for listening this far I'm Dave. I'm Sarah. And I'm Steve. And we're delighted to have your attention. Welcome to Happy Pair Podcast, which is all about exploring health, happiness, community, and all these curiosities, which we're very much interested in. In terms of lifestyle, happiness, all the super fun stuff in life. And guess what? Guess where we just came back from? 
Greece. Yeah. Sakintos. I felt like the Brady Bunch running through the airport with your 100 kids. <laughs> there was 11 of us. We went to Greece and we stayed in a super lovely place and had a wonderful time. Yeah. Oh, it was magic. It's funny because I kept thinking wherever we went, I was like, should we divide the adults per kid? Because each kid needs its own adult. I mean, each of your beautiful children have a complete mind of their own and like wander all somewhere. Like Izzy is a magical little child who, who just sees things and can just kind of wander off to let Ned is this like loud proud little like fighting individual <laughs> that'll probably start a fight with someone in the corner you're like everybody needs a minder <laughs> kind of the case not a dull moment though no, but, no, but the true. trip was kind of like it was like holiday camp or summer camp I remember when we were kids we were part of this thing called Greystone Summer Project which was it was when we were probably 12 and there was loads. It was one of our most favorite. It really things. was. It was two weeks where there was nonstop activities and you made so many new friends and there was so much new, like fun and entertainment. And we were in Greece for a week there and it was a well-being retreat and it really was, it was in like, the Pelagonia Club. It was like adult summer camp. It really was where there was nonstop. We were, yeah, we were like semi-pro athletes. I looked at my steps or my like zone minutes and I'd like off the chart compared to the usual week because we were like doing yoga. We were running. We were swimming to islands. We were doing handstands we were doing breath work we were you know doing cycling Kiking cooking dinners there was it was non-stop activities and it was i found that really relaxing which is weird yeah it's because you shut your brain off from like your laptop i couldn't even remember work well like i because i was with you guys at one point or a couple of points i attempted to work and i remember you all your kids kind of gravitated around me and like i had <laughs> my children he, would never do that <laughs> i had may like nearly sitting on my lap i had uh elsie like leaning on on the back of me i don't think she even realized she was leaning on me and then i had theo like poking my face and after a while theo just goes to me mm, you've such patience and I was like, Thanks. <laughs> so it definitely wasn't a place to work it was no. a place for a lot of fun no no it was, it was interesting to learn we had a good discussion about uh, relaxation and many people think really relaxation is sitting down reading a book like breathing deeply but for those active type I think it's the ability to switch off and to be fully present in what we were doing because Harold was saying he wanted to, Harold is Sarah's partner the father of the child <laughs> of Sarah and Harold's <laughs> to child come. to come uh, Sarah's pregnant by not the way. your child <laughs> no 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 uh, uh, and Harold was kind of saying no I think I need to sit down and read today like I really need to concentrate and relax and we were kind of saying that well often for the twitchy type which is quite like us you know relaxation can really kind of focus into the present moment and can, can be as nourishing as sitting down being present with a book. And relaxation I think comes when you get into that flow state when you yeah. really are lost in the moment in a childlike wonder and that really was what happened like going out in those kayaks to caves or Steve had the crazy idea of let's swim to that island there and we did our longest swim ever which was 1.8 kilometers which might not sound like a lot to some people but for us it was we were delighted I did as well life. and I'm pregnant. Yeah, yeah. I know. Well, now you so kinda, I get the medal. You, you kind of got a lift for a bit of it as well <laughs> so don't be trying to drag us down like, <laughs> it was amazing though. it was really like, really really fun really was yeah. um, speaking of relaxing uh, one thing we learned in this week's podcast not that I'm to talk about what's happening in the podcast you're about to listen to but um, was that relaxing is very good for erections yeah. opposed to adrenaline yeah, so I wonder did you, you have good sex on holidays like, <laughs> you would yeah. think adrenaline you would think adrenaline would be like pumping through your body like adrenaline makes your muscles really big but then yeah. we learned your penis isn't actually a muscle it's just a collection of tissue and blood vessels that actually swell and uh, do some cool stuff. So obviously, if you clicked on this thing, you're you have a penis, or you know someone that has a penis, and you're, you're interested in penises or penis health. But anyway, <laughs> this week we're talking with the wonderful Doctor Aaron Schutz. How do I say his Spitz? Surname? Spitz. I'm, I'm sorry. Excuse me, Aaron Spitz. Uh, he's an incredible urologist. You might have seen him in the the famous, the most famous documentary of all time called Game Changer. 
Uh, he literally wrote the book on the penis called The, the penis, penis book. book. He's a board certified urologist who specializes in male infertility and sexual health. He's really, really fantastic, very accessible and practical and like very like smart and concise and doctor like, but also really good fun and entertaining as well. Yeah. So he, he's perfect. A, he's a gentleman. Yeah, it really is. So we covered loads of different interesting topics. Which Premature is, ejaculation. Erectile, erectile dysfunction, dysfunction. Foods to eat. Lifestyle. The impacts of stress. Testosterone. Impact. Yeah, really, really fascinating. So I hope you really enjoyed this. And if you do, please share on social media, share on Instagram stories, and we'll reshare it as well. Without further ado, we give you the wonderful urologist, Dr. Aaron Spitz. Enjoy. I, I feel you, you a little go. bit uh, outmanned here, you know, two on one. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd be well able. I think you're well able. Thank you. I'll try to be up for the task. Yes. Oh, I love it. Yeah, you must be the best man for like toilet humor and penis jokes and all that thing. I, well, that's what, you know, we all have to have uh, goals and aspirations. You know, you got to wake up in the morning for something. <laughs> I love it. I love it. What's the, okay, okay, first thing, what's, what's the best word? What's your favorite word to you for penis? Or what's the best that you've heard of? Because, you know, there's like the one-eyed Ooh. joint. There's the, you know, the cyclops. There's, you know, there's a yeah. million different names for it. What, what, do you any personal favorites or does it depend on the uh, season? I, I mean, you know, it, it's not very original, but I think, I think Robin Williams really, really caught it when he called it Mr. Happy. I think Mr. Happy, I think Mr. Happy is a great name for it. I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's upbeat. It's positive. It doesn't scare anybody away. You know, Vlad the Impaler, it's kind of scary. I mean, <laughs> Vlad the Impaler. You know, the, the chicks don't really dig that one. So, yeah, oh. I would say Mr. Happy. Mr. Happy. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> sure, I even see my little boys when they're sitting on the couch. They'll just have their hand down, just minding their tackle, you know, and they're just, yeah. it's their happy, comfortable sure. place. That's right. I mean, it's uh, uh, little kids are learning about everything. Uh, their brains are constantly processing and, you know, uh, best to learn it young. You know, you want to be in touch with yourself. You don't want to be out of touch with it because, you know, there are some guys out there who are quite conflicted and out of touch and uncomfortable. So we got to let our kids learn to be comfortable with their bodies, I think. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. and I think yeah. it starts with learning about it and really like understanding it and not being afraid to talk about it. Because certainly we grew up in Catholic Ireland where you didn't talk about masturbation. You didn't really talk about these things. They were sneaky, silent, slightly dirty things that you'd go blind if you were doing that type of stuff. You know, there's all that's these urban myths, whereas I think just yeah. having these conversations is so important. Well, that's that's so true. You know, I wrote uh, a book called The Penis Book and uh, it it covers everything about the penis and a lot of what it does <clears throat> is dispel myths. And I've had so many patients who are older now, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, who say, man, I wish I had this book when I was a young guy. I wish I had this book when I was a teenager. I wish I had this book when I was a young man. Because even, even then, you know, the, these, these men in their 60s, 70s, 80s, executives, high-powered, intelligent people have lived their whole lives with subtle little lies and, and little urban myths that are always in, in the back plaguing you because, you know, if it's not true, um, more often than not, it's probably more destructive than helpful. And when we walk around with these misconceptions about our own sexuality for years, stuff that we maybe even take for granted, and then one day we come across the truth about it, it's liberating. And, uh, you know, the younger you are when you can know the truth about your own body, certainly the better you're going to be for the rest of your lives. And, you know, just as true for sexuality as it is for 
heart health, brain health, our muscles, our bones. You know, kids are very concerned with their athletic performance, but, you know, they're also concerned with their sexual performance before too long. And the earlier they can get the right information, the better. Brilliant. And what, what are some of the most common myths? Because as you said, like, as we said, there's like, if you masturbate, you're going to go blind. You know, does size really matter? Like, there's lots of different things that I wonder, what are the most common myths that you've, t- uh, like, you must have heard most of them at this stage. And I'm sure every yeah. man listening went, does size actually matter? I know Dave Or is said it that. the motion of the ocean? Or is it an ego thing? Or is, you know... Yeah, I would, I would say to you that size is uh, a, a very big concern for uh, for many guys, uh, not all guys, but many guys are very concerned about their size. And I would say the biggest myth is that my penis is smaller than normal, not me, Aaron Spitz, but the average. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I so many men think that their penises are smaller than normal. And so even though they have sex and they have families. Uh, in the back of their mind, there is this uh, constant uh, you know, knowledge that they are too small and they're just gonna you know, get through life anyway. And they don't have to have felt like that uh, or they don't have to feel like it. And then for some men, it's more crippling. Uh, it prevents them from having relationships. Uh, and that spills over, not just into intimacy, but into how they conduct themselves in non-sexual circumstances with colleagues at work uh, or with with friends and family because of that misperception, that myth that their penis is too small. And men think their penis is too small because they really don't have much frame of reference. Uh, Most of the frames of reference that they look at are the frames in uh, pornography films. And uh, those feature men that are unusually large that's why they're in those movies. Uh, but the average guy is uh, is something that they're really not able to gauge. How, how many penises does an average guy look at? Uh, and the other thing is you've got the difference in the flaccid penis size. You know, for some men, the, the flaccid, the unerect penis is a lot smaller than another guy. But when they get hard, they're very similar. Uh, or sometimes this, the smaller one, soft, is bigger, hard because our penises are comprised of tissues that are in different ratios of elastic tissue versus strong tissue. And the more elastic tissue you have, the bigger it grows, but the shorter it contracts. And the less elastic tissue you have, the more similar it is. And we're just built that way, it's a whole spectrum. But your average guy is not gonna know all that. He's not gonna see that. I've looked at, thousands and thousands of penises uh, you know that's my job i'm a urologist i work with dicks and assholes all day that's what i do <laughs> so, uh, you know, i've got i've got a very good you know perspective on this and it allows me to go home feeling better about myself too well and is, is there any connection like say with primates like i just wonder as males there sends to be this societal fascination or a you know a Probably obsession with size. Is there any evolutionary, like in primates, where typically the alpha, the leader of the primates, had a bigger size penis? Or is this just totally picked out of the sky and it's an insecurity that kind of marketing has really started to, to that Stephen profit has. on? Yeah, um, I have never come across any literature indicating that the, the alpha male in a particular colony of primates was the one with the larger penis. But, you know, there are theories about why penis sizes 
are what they are. And there is a theory that uh, primates with larger penises may have been able to propagate their genes more successfully than primates with smaller penises because if the female primate was having um, uh, uh, was being was mating with multiple males, perhaps the male with a larger penis was able to deposit the sperm deeper into the vagina and get it closer to the egg than the competitors. But I mean, th th these are anthropological theories that are very, uh, let's say, um, weakly founded because you know sperm once deposited into the vagina is not is not delivered by force to the egg. It deposits on the walls of the vagina, it liquefies, and then it travels along the walls of the vagina, then through the cervix to the egg. And so whether you deposit it at the cervix or whether you deposit it you know, further out, I don't believe makes a whole lot of biological difference. And furthermore, when you think about things like intrauterine insemination, you know, which is done for couples that are trying to get pregnant and are having some challenges, that semen is not deposited further into the vagina. It's actually deposited through a little tiny opening, real tiny opening in the cervix with a syringe that can get through there to deposit the sperm. So if it was really an evolutionary advantage, you'd probably want the primates that had needle dicks, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good one. Okay, while we're on the topic of myths, there's an expression or a stat which I've heard bandied around a little bit, and I wonder if this is true. So erectile dysfunction, I think it's become quite common and it's very relevant in today's society. And there's a stat which I've heard that 40% of men in their 40s suffer with erectile dysfunction, approximately 40% of men in their 40s, approximately 50% of men in their 50s, and approximately 60% of men in their 60s. And I wondered, is there any kind of truth in that or what's your experience with that yes that is actually a, a very reliable statistic it's been demonstrated in a, in a few different studies and it's not uh just that 40 percent of men have erectile dysfunction and 80 percent of men have erectile dysfunction and it's all the same it's, it's also a degree of the severity of the erectile dysfunction increases with age so 40 percent of guys have some degree of erectile dysfunction, most of it on the milder side, and 80% of men have erectile dysfunction, most of it on the severe side. So as we get older, the chances of us having erectile dysfunction increases, and the chances of it becoming more and more severe increases. So when we're 70s, in our 70s, 70% of men in their 70s have erectile dysfunction. In our 60s, 60%. So it's a pretty easy to remember statistic. And as we get older, it gets more severe. And it's really a reflection that erectile dysfunction uh, is largely a consequence of age-related changes. And then those age-related changes are a consequence of a variety of factors, some of which we can control. And that's a lot of what you guys speak to, is we can control what we put in our mouth, what we eat. And that can put on the brakes on these age-related changes to a degree. I mean, we are mortal. At some point, we will die. And then, yes, even at some point, our penis will die. And the goal is to die before our penises do and not vice versa. And what we can do to slow down those age-related changes can help keep us out of that 40%, 50%, 60%. And maybe if we're lucky enough, we'll be one of those 80-year-olds that's in the 20% or one of those 90-year-olds that's in the 10%. And so, so what is the oldest, like if, if we are to, you know, if 
we live to 100, what's the likelihood of us having a, like a strong virile erection at the age of 100? Or is that a, a myth? No, it can happen. I do have couples, uh, not a lot of couples in their hundreds, but I do have couples in their 90s where they are still sexually active. Now, they are not sexually active with great frequency. The frequency with which men and women have sex decreases with age, and that is a natural phenomenon, but they still enjoy it very much. So I may have an elderly couple that uh, has sex once every few months or a couple times a year in their 90s, but they really enjoy that intimacy. And then I might have couples in their 80s who are having sex weekly. Uh, and it really uh, can vary, but when they want to have sex, they're able to, yes, even in those advanced ages, but you know, it is going to be a minority of the patients uh, that I see. That's amazing. I think I that's, that. that's, that's, that's inspiring. inspiring. Really Thank inspiring. You. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. That gives us hope. All, all hope. So with society at large, typically to be a man and to, the symbol of masculinity, they're ripping open flesh. We are, we are beasts. And like it's drugs, it's alcohol and all these symbols of masculine in our society, stress, you know, all these things. How do these affect our erection and our ability to be real, not to be real men, sorry, that sounds totally cliche, but the ability to be, to, for our penis to be able to get erect so that we can be sexually active? Yeah, it, you know, I think that you can look at it like, uh, I remember the, the, those old toys, we, we used to call them Chinese finger traps. I don't know if that's racist now, but it was the, the, the thing where you, it was like a woven straw tube and you put your finger in either side and then you try to pull it out. And the harder you tried to pull, the more it would squeeze. And you could, and the harder you struggled and you had to just relax to get the fingers out of there. Well, that's like an erection. Uh, erections don't work when there's adrenaline pumping through your system. So the harder you try to power, the harder you try to exert your will, the more adrenaline you have, the more pumped up you are, the limper your dick gets. Okay. So <laughs> adrenaline. So we use adrenaline to lift something heavy. We use adrenaline to, uh, to fight. Uh, we use adrenaline to excel in sports, uh, to cope with the stress of our, of our jobs, of our lives, uh, whatever challenges. Adrenaline uh, um, allows us to make it through incredible challenges, but it is the exact worst thing possible for your erection. So when faced with a sexual in, uh, encounter, uh, this notion that I'm gonna, I'm gonna man up and I'm gonna power through and I'm gonna hit it, the exact opposite. Because what happens is adrenaline causes our bodies to prepare for a physical challenge, something that might hurt us or overwhelm us that we have to overcome. And to prepare for that physical challenge, we need all the blood to rush to our heart and lungs and brain. And so our body with adrenaline is shunting all that blood to those vital structures away from the less critical structures like our fingers, our toes, and our penis. So when we have adrenaline pumping, the blood is drawn away from our penis. The blood vessels in our penis actually squeeze down so the blood won't go in there and it'll go to our heart and lungs and brain. And therefore, that manly, powerful, intense kind of a notion absolutely kills the erection. If you want to have a good erection, you've got to be relaxed. You've got to be mellow. You've got to be not 
the apex predator guy, you've got to be the relaxed, uh, caring, feeling, happy guy, Mr. Happy. That's why it's <laughs> name, Mr. Happy. And so once that adrenaline rush is gone and you're in a relaxed state of mind, then the parasympathetic nerves, which is the opposite nerves from the ones that release adrenaline, the sympathetic nerves release adrenaline, the parasympathetic nerves then can take over and they release not adrenaline, but nitric oxide, which you guys have talked about and lots of people have talked about. Nitric oxide is a neurotransmitter. It's actually a gas in its form in our body. It's a gas. It just lasts for moments and it's released by these parasympathetic nerves and the nitric oxide causes all the spaces, all these little spongy spaces in the chambers of the penis, uh, which are actually like the lining of blood vessels, but it's like a sponge of blood vessels and it allows them all to relax and open up and accept lots more blood flowing in. So all that blood that was shunted away from the penis because it was squeezed shut now can flow into the penis and fill up the penis and make it erect because that's what an erection is. It's the chambers of the penis filling up with blood so much that it gets hard and firm. And then that blood gets trapped in there. And that's your erection. And not only do you have to have good blood flow to fill up the penis, but you also have to have good blood flow to trap the penis because it's the filling of the penis itself and the squishing uh, to the sides of the little veins that are in the lining of the chambers getting squished or pinched off by all that blood inside it, squeezing it shut that traps the blood in there. It's the filling and the trapping both that rely on nice, relaxed blood vessels and they get relaxed because of nitric oxide. And if there's adrenaline, they constrict and squeeze everything off. So they're almost at, they're almost at odds like adrenaline and nitric oxide because adrenaline Absolutely. is your fight and flight hormone and nitric oxide is produced from, you know, good habits and relaxation and stuff like that. Right. In the penis. I mean, we yeah. need nitric oxide throughout our whole body to have good circulation. And when the adrenaline kicks in and our blood is pumping and we're doing incredibly uh, uh, amazing physical things, we're also doing that because we have good nitric oxide allowing the blood to flow through our brain and our lungs and our heart. But it's that adrenaline overwhelms what's happening in the penis on purpose because we're not supposed to dick around. We're supposed to fight or flight you know so uh i love it know, i was waiting that, that's normal i was waiting for the dicking around and the penis kind of uh <laughs> this, yeah. this is a great one i love this i love this topic so much uh, and, and essentially essentially the penis is like the ultimate vital sign in a sense and maybe not the ultimate for men for men that is. well i don't even know men that have penises but maybe i'm wrong but um it is a vital sign in a sense isn't it particularly in terms of like i've heard it being referred to as the canary in the coal mine in terms of cardiovascular disease i wonder if you could talk about that because i think this this yeah. is so relevant yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. It, canary in a coal mine is an apt description. Um, you know, canary is a lot smaller than a man and a lot more sensitive to uh, the noxious uh, noxious chemicals in the coal mine than a man. And so it'll die before the men in the coal mine will. And the men will see that the canary is dead and say, oh, you know what? We have a problem. We couldn't tell. We didn't smell it. We didn't feel it. But the canary is letting us know there's a problem. We better get out of here. We better do something different. Well, that's how the penis is. Uh, your penis is a lot smaller than you. Um, and the blood vessels to your penis um, are a lot smaller than the blood vessels in your heart, right? Your heart is the key thing. If your heart goes, it's over. If your penis goes, you can still, you can still survive. 
long, long time, but you can't survive very long without your heart. And so the blood vessels to the penis are only one fifth the diameter of the blood vessels to the heart. But all the blood vessels in our body, penis, heart, arms, legs, wherever, they all um, are going to be healthy or unhealthy under the same influences, the same foods, the same medications, age-related, et cetera. So it takes one-fifth the time to block the blood flow to your penis than it does to block the blood flow in your coronary arteries. And erectile dysfunction is usually a condition of poor blood flow. It's a problem with the blood vessels in the penis. So when a man starts to notice that he's getting weak erections or is having difficulty keeping his erections, that means most likely that the little arteries in his penis are starting to get clogged off, which means that the arteries all throughout his body are starting to get clogged off. It's just that because they're bigger everywhere else, he's not feeling it. And he's not getting heart pain. He's not getting angina. He's not getting a heart attack yet. But give it more time, and that same process will have clogged off his coronary arteries, his heart arteries enough where he will get that chest pain or that heart attack. So that's why erectile dysfunction, which is a decreased flow of blood to the penis, was the canary in the coal mine that, hey, you better check yourself. There's decreased blood flow everywhere. And if you catch it early now, you might have a chance to prevent it or reverse it. And that's why we think of erectile dysfunction as this important vital sign because it's an early warning sign. And the other thing that's very, uh, I would say, important about this early warning sign for men in particular is that at least in the United States, the culture is that men hardly ever come into the doctor after, you know, they're done with their sports physical exams, you know, by the time they're age 18. And, and, and most young men uh, and middle-aged men never see a doctor. And they only see a doctor once they're older and starting to feel sick. And so it's not as if these guys in their 40s and 50s are starting to get erectile dysfunction, which is a reflection of, of poor cardiovascular health. It's not as if they've been getting regular checkups. They haven't. And so for many of these men, when they come in to see their doctor because their penis isn't working, and that's driven them finally to get in to see the doctor, nothing else has, you know, they might have twisted their ankle or cut themselves or whatever, or maybe they have a chest pain that they've been ignoring, but the pain is not working. That brings them into the doctor's office. And that may be the first time that they get an evaluation, that they get some blood tests done, they get an EKG, that they, that they actually discover, wow, you actually have significant cardiovascular disease and we got to get you uh, under treatment. We got to do some changes in your life and your diet, et cetera, before your first sign of heart disease, which is often sudden death. Sudden death is often the first symptom men have of heart disease. But this canary in the coal mine, this erectile dysfunction, this penis that we are so concerned with will get us into the doctor in time. Amazing. I think it's, it's fascinating to think Steam's of it that way. Twitching to ask oh, yeah, I'm, I'm twitching, yes, on the topic of... He's throbbing <laughs> to ask you something. Throbbing to ask you a question. Uh, just wondering, on the topic of diet, like say someone comes in and they're, you know, say for example, someone comes in, middle-aged man, and is having difficulty keeping a firm erection. What are the general things that he can apply to start to kind of heal this issue and, and give himself hope. I know, I know in your book, you have five, um, five actions. And number one, you talk, don't fork yourself. I wonder if you could talk about that because I think it's fascinating. And suddenly I'm, what the hell, fork yourself? What does that mean? Yeah, so fork means, you know, what you eat. Uh, and, and I say, go fork yourself. Meaning, okay, yes. go, <laughs> go eat 
uh, foods that are going to be beneficial to your blood vessels, to your circulation. And don't eat foods that aren't. And so uh, the plant-based foods are really uh, proven to be the best foods for our circulation. Foods that provide nitric oxide, but also that provide lots of different phytonutrients, some of which we understand, some of which we don't understand how they work yet. But basically what's been shown is that when we eat plant-based foods, green leafy vegetables, cruciferous vegetables, berries, fruits, nuts, you know, you name it, um, all of these beneficial nutrients, these chemicals, they help heal our blood vessels from damage, from oxidative stress, from, from toxins, from excess sugars, from excess fats, and they promote the release of nitric oxide to keep our blood vessels nice and open. You know, when we are younger humans, we make our own nitric oxide. And in a way, when we're very young, we're kind of bulletproof. Uh, fortunately, you know, we, we can't control what we eat when we're young, we eat what we're fed. But nonetheless, our bodies make plenty of nitric oxide to keep those blood vessels open. But as we get older, we stop making as much. Once we hit about 30 or mid 30s, um, we now no longer make sufficient amounts of nitric, nitric oxide, despite, uh, you know, what we're eating, and we start to need to supplement it. And the greatest sources of nitric oxide are the plant-based foods and the animal-based foods have very, very little. So when we're middle-aged men, uh, we really need to get that extra nitric oxide to make up for the amounts that we're not making from the foods we eat. And so we wanna reach for the foods that are richest in nitric oxide, the green leafy vegetables, the beets. Um, and we want to not fill our plates and fill our stomachs with food that don't have much nitric oxide like animal products. And we also wanna avoid foods that are noxious that are actually toxic to the lining of our blood vessels like added sugars like excess fats and so that's what i mean by go fork yourself eat the stuff that's going to promote the health of your blood vessels and therefore the blood flow to your penis and help not only preserve your erections allow you to get uh, older with a healthier penis but also reverse some of the damage done and start to restore some of the blood flow to your penis and get better erections over time and it's not going to be overnight it's going to take maybe six months, a year, two years. It's gonna be a long-term commitment to actually notice the difference. And in the meantime, you can bridge that with pharmaceuticals, pills, uh, sildenafil, tadalafil, vardenafil. These are all the generics for Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, et cetera. They allow the nitric oxide that your body is making, that's not as much as it used to be, to act longer in the penis. Remember I said nitric oxide is a neurotransmitter. It's released by the parasympathetic nerves. And then the body reacts to it and then the body takes it away, right? We have like a, a yin and a yang, a balance. We have an on and then an off to try to keep our body in balance. And what these pills do is they keep that on switch on longer so that it can last longer. And so if a man is trying to restore their sexual function, get healthier, eat better, but they still have to go to bed that night and they want to have some intimacy that night and they're not going to say, Hey, honey, give me about a year. I'll be back. I'm going to go eat some vegetables. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very safe uh, under the supervision of a prescribing doctor uh, to use these pills as a bridge and allow for sexual function tonight, harnessing that nitric oxide tonight and, and being encouraged while you're making that transition and improving your, your, inherent health gradually over time with the dietary change. 
So, so it's essentially focusing on, like in terms of food, focusing on whole plant foods, trying to unprocess your diet as much as you can and trying to minimize animal products, you know, minimizing processed sugars, processed salts, processed fats and whatnot. And I wonder, um, like you said, beets and greens and things like this, like high nitric oxide foods. And I know there's watermelon and things like this. I wonder, is there a correlation between high antioxidant rich foods and high nitric oxide rich foods? Because, you know, like beetroots, obviously super high in antioxidants. You've got turmeric, you've got blueberries. They're typically the super vibrant colored foods are really high in antioxidants. Is that a correlation between antioxidants and nitric oxide? Yes, absolutely. And um, it's important not to overemphasize nitric oxide to the exclusion of all these other phytonutrients. You know, there are many supplements out there that, you know, super nitro max, you know, whatever, you know, and you can get like, you know, more nitric oxide than is in a, in a supercharged funny car. Um, but the thing is nitric oxide, as important a molecule as it is, is not the only molecule that our blood vessels and our bodies require. In fact, you know, we are just scratching the surface in what we understand about nutritional science. I mean, we have, there are thousands of publications on nutritional science, but we are still you know, looking into a mirror darkly. We're, there's still so much we don't understand in the way that important molecules that we think of as being important to consume, that you know, this is good for you and that's good for you and make sure you get plenty of this. You know, these are just little pieces of a much larger puzzle that is yet to be worked out and the way these pieces interplay with each other. So you want to get maximum phytonutrients. You want to get these antioxidants that exist in the greatest abundance in plants. So plant-based foods and these superfoods, the, the berries um, and the beets, et cetera, they have not just nitric oxide or not just whatever the, the popular molecule of the podcast is. They've got thousands of molecules called phytonutrients that do things that are great for you, some of which we haven't even begun to understand. Some of these molecules we don't even know are there yet because we haven't understood how to characterize and recognize them. But the more of these different phytonutrients you can get into your body and let them do whatever it is that they're doing that we really don't understand, the better. Okay, so I think that if you look at the produce section of, of your market, as a medicine cabinet, but none of those medicines have side effects. They're only good for you. They're only helpful. You wanna take as many of them as you can and mix them in as many combinations as you can because there's no bad drug-drug interactions with phytomedicines. It's all good. And I we don't know that. which ones to take the most of. So, so just take them all. Right. And in terms, in terms of food, so if I want a, a strong erection at age 100, so eat loads of plant-based foods, get stuck in to get into that produce aisle and start caning into all the vegetables and fruits and whatnot. And in terms of like, obviously there's what I want to do, but then there's what I want to avoid. It's trying to like minimize the amount of animal foods, processed foods and junk foods. And are there any other behaviors that I should try to cultivate more of? Like is lifestyle, what kind of other factors? Because I... I know in terms of cardiovascular health, like obviously exercise is important and sleep and rest and stress and these type of things. And I wonder, are these also linked to having a firm erection late into our later years? Yes, they are. Um, exercise is also you know, very important, but you can't sort of uh, exercise away your bad eating. So if, if you want to look at the balance uh, of of sort of the impacts on, on what we do. 
I would say that particularly when it comes to say obesity and weight loss, it's 80% how we eat and about 20% our exercise. Exercise is critical though. I'm not, I'm not underplaying exercise because when you exercise, you actually also stimulate the release of nitric oxide. Just the shearing forces of the blood pumping more rapidly with greater force through the walls of your blood vessel stimulates the release of nitric oxide in the walls of those blood vessels, which then reinforces the health of those blood vessels. <clears throat> it also causes the release of other chemicals in the blood that counteract toxins in the blood and, and act as natural antioxidants. So the actual physical nature of exercise and the blood pumping through our blood vessels is doing great things for the health of our blood vessels in, a, in addition to and separate from the stuff that we do for our blood vessels with the good foods that we eat. So exercise is absolutely essential and being sedentary um, is, a, is a very high risk factor for having poor erections. Men who exercise more have better erections and stronger erections, and it actually correlates to how much they exercise. So exercise is clearly scientifically proven to help with your sexual function in addition to food. Amazing. And is there any, I remember we had a teacher, we went to an all boys school and I remember one time we used to ask, sir, can I go to the toilet, please? And someone would go to the toilet. And one day he promptly just stopped and said, gentlemen, let me tell you in a secret. I won't do his voice in particular, but he said, stop once or twice during urination to build up the sphincter muscle. And I'll always remember we roared laughing. None of us knew what the hell a sphincter muscle was, but we knew it was something to do with the penis. So we were all, you know, <laughs> and, and we, kinda, we, we fed boys. on this for weeks. But subsequently, like I spoke to a friend there and he went to the same school and he's the same teacher. And he said, I've actually been doing that for 30 years. Is there any proof in that stopping the flow of urine as you go to the toilet will help build up this sphincter muscle, which can help stop premature ejaculation and can or, help or you or have can strong, give you a firmer erection. A firmer well, erection. Is there it? any proof in these key? Is it like lifting weights? Is it like lifting, Is it like weights, for lifting weights for your penis? Yeah. So, you know, we talk about the penis as a muscle, but it's not a muscle. Uh, it's just um, uh, tissue that is uh, blood vessels and uh, and a lining that's kind of like a tendon-like tissue, but it's also very elastic. But there's no there's no muscle in the penis as we think of it, like you know, in our biceps. Um, but there is a muscle that surrounds the base of the penis, and that muscle does constrict, does contract to squeeze the, the blood that's within the penis and, and make it even firmer. So, you know, if you have an erection and it's not quite firm and you squeeze the base of the penis, you're squeezing more blood into that same, in that same space and the, the erection gets harder. That's how a cock ring works, right? That's the principle of a constriction band on the base of the penis to, to make that penis harder, firmer by taking that same amount of blood that's in that limited space and then, you know, squeezing it in there more like when you squeeze a balloon and you make it you make it mm, balloon out well there's a muscle at the base of your penis that does exactly that so when it contracts it's it, it, it compresses on the penis and the, whatever blood is in the penis at the time it'll it'll increase the pressure and make the penis even harder yes and that same muscle contracts when you're having a sexual climax when you're ejaculating it's the muscle that's squeezing and by squeezing on the base of the penis, it's also squeezing on the urethra, the channel that the semen and the urine come through. And so it rhythmically contracts 
to pump the semen out. And that's why we, you know, we come in squirts. It's because that same muscle is pumping and squeezing and it's happening involuntarily. It's a, it's a reflex to the, the sexual climax. We don't say, okay, squirt, squirt, squirt. It's just, it's doing it on its own. But here's the thing. If you exercise that muscle, when it goes to contract to give you a firmer erection during sex, and then when it goes to compress rhythmically uh, during climax, if you've exercised it, not only will it squeeze harder for your erection, but you have more of a, a neurological feedback loop to that muscle. And for many men, they can learn to not let it get to that point of ejaculation. They can learn to kind of hold it off a bit. When they do ejaculate, it's going to go on its own. It's going to pump according to its own rhythm. But you get in tune with it because you've been working it. You know what that part of your pelvis feels like. You know when it's starting to get more stimulated, when it's starting to, to contract more. And you may be able to hold off longer. And so that's why exercising that muscle, yes, can allow for firmer erections while it's just squeezing during erection, just kind of holding the penis taut. And then also help you to uh, delay your ejaculation a bit, not letting it get to that rhythmic contraction part yet because you're in tune with it. But you don't need to interrupt the flow of your urine to exercise it. Interrupting the flow of your urine allows you to understand what that muscle is because it's the muscle that you have to squeeze to interrupt the flow of your urine. And so that lets you know, okay, that's what that muscle is. But when you want to exercise it, I don't recommend interrupting the flow of your urine because at some point you might actually cause a problem. Uh, you might cause the, the pressure when you're urinating to get too high in your urethra and cause urine to kind of go backwards up into some ducts that it shouldn't go backwards into and cause some inflammation. <laughs> so rather than interrupt the flow of your urine, do that same squeeze that you learned how to do by interrupting the flow of your urine, but not when you're urinating. So I mean, I could be doing it. I could be doing it right now. You wouldn't know. Right. Uh, I am doing so, it right now. Ha ha ha. There you go. Why don't you, yeah. I mean, you know, get your brother to spot you. First but, you know, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, you, you could, you can do this exercise uh, anytime, but typically what I would recommend is, is, you know, squeeze, do that squeeze. Like you're, uh, interrupting the flow of your urine. We are and hold it for like a, yeah, hold and hold it for a count of like five or six. You know, squeeze two, three, three four, four, five, five, six, and then let go. And then squeeze two and and repeat that maybe 20, 30 reps, maybe two, three times a day. You can also mix it up a little, do do some rapid quick ones, but basically this is going to strengthen the muscle that's going to contract. And keep your penis for. Oh, I, yes. I, 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 I want to say something. Okay, you go, you there go, was okay. this, when we were in our twenties, there was a book which which somehow we came across, and it was called The Multi Orgasmic Man. And I remember it was like all about like you know clenches and squeezes and breath and breathing, and it was all about like on the topic of coming. It was about kind of going, okay, well, women can have multiple orgasms, and I'm wondering, is there any truth in terms of men having multiple orgasms? And I remember as part of that book, it was kind of rooted in Taoist principles. And I was talking about saving your seed, saying that like, there's so much energy goes into your producing sperm and semen, and that if you save your seed, you will have more vitality and you will have the fountain of youth and you will live to the age of 250 while having an erect penis. Well, not quite like that wasn't the truth of the book, but it was, that was how I understood it. And I wonder, is there any truth in any of that? Or is that a whole lot of myths? Well, I, I am not an expert in 
uh, uh, tantric sex. So I, I can't speak to it. I haven't researched it. I myself am not multi-orgasmic. Um, uh, I wish I were. I don't really know how to do that. But what I can tell you is some, is some I think, useful information on that topic. Uh, and and one, of, one of the things I'd share on that is that there's this thing called a refractory period. Uh, that men have. So after they after they orgasm, there's a period of time where uh, it's just impossible for them to get erect again and then to, to go on to have another orgasm. And when we're young, that refractory period is very short. Uh, you know, we can go a couple times or multiple times, but it's not multiple orgasms with the same erection. It's an erection, an orgasm, go soft, then another erection, another orgasm, go soft. And for a lot of guys with premature ejaculation, that's the strategy they use when they're younger. They might go real quick, but that's okay because they're going to get hard again, and then they're going to last longer because it's harder to reach an orgasm the second time around um, or the third time around. And so, you know, they they kind of harness that refractory period just as sort of a, a natural strategy. But then, as we get older, as men get older, the refractory period gets longer and longer, and it becomes very normal for us to have difficulty getting erections a second time that same night, or even the next night, or even a couple nights later. And for some men, their refractory period is really about a week, okay, as they get into middle age. Um, and, and this is also why, I, as I mentioned earlier, some of my very older patients who enjoy sex, greatly enjoy sex, maybe have it every few months. Um, it's just a refractory period that, that naturally increases as we get older. Um, and so for the guy with premature ejaculation, as he starts to get uh, into his 30s, 40s, he's realizing, well, wow, this isn't working anymore. Um, I can't get it up again right away. Uh, and so I've shot my wad and, you know, night's over. What do I do? And then they have to address it because and there are ways to address it, fortunately. But um, understanding that there's a natural refractory period also helps relieve a lot of anxiety for a lot of men in their 30s. We're wondering why they're not able to have sex a couple times in a row like they were in their 20s. Well, it's just normal. It's just natural. And the, and some of the problem is with pornography, we are given sort of these, these unrealistic expectations of, you know, how we're supposed to be able to function sexually, how frequently, for how long, et cetera. And as far as like the duration of sex and, and, and how long it should last, you know, you know, are these, these you know, uh, Taoist sex monks who are having sex for hours and hours and not ejaculating, you know, and they're 200 years old, maybe, but um, I don't know if I really want to live like that. <laughs> the average duration of intercourse is about five to seven minutes. That's what most people do. That's how most long most people go. And there are unfortunate men who cannot reach climax in an average amount of time. And they have a condition <clears throat> called delayed ejaculation and they may have to go a very long time with very exhausting rigorous effort to reach a climax and in many cases just not able to reach a climax with partnered sex and then have to finish off manually but with a lot of effort and for these men you know not going too quick is not the problem the problem is not being able to to go quick enough for a natural uh symbiotic sexual experience with their partner so it can cut both ways. And what about saving your seed? What about that idea of not ejaculating to kind of, you know, the way, and I think it probably was 
the idea of what was his name? Muhammad Ali, Muhammad used, Ali to say used, to used to say like he'd never ejaculate before a title fight because he'd be weak and he wouldn't be able to win or whatnot. And I wondered if there's any truth in that. Well, I think, um, you know, if you're stepping into the ring, uh, probably so. And, and here's why, because <clears throat> as I mentioned, uh, you know, you don't want to have adrenaline in your pumping in your system when you're trying to get an erection. Yeah, you can be relaxed. But once you reach climax, there is an intense release of adrenaline. And that's why you lose your erection right after climax. Your penis goes soft after you ejaculate because there's been this huge release of adrenaline and it's constricted the blood vessels in your penis. Well, if you have a huge release of adrenaline, after that release is done, you're kind of spent, right? You've, you've released that adrenaline store. Well, if you're then going to go right into a situation where you needed a, an adrenaline release and you've just released your adrenaline stores, you're not going to have as much adrenaline to release. So temporarily, for a small period of time, you are going to have less strength and vigor right after you've just climaxed because you've just released a bunch of adrenaline and now you've got to build it back up again. So yeah, there's some truth to it, but not in terms of general long-term health and strength, no. So if you wanna be you know, amped up and strong and ready going in a ring against you know, a heavyweight champion, you don't wanna ejaculate right, right before you get in the ring because you're gonna be like, hey guys, why don't we just have a cigarette and a pizza? <laughs> you know? uh, so um, yes, yeah, so that's, but it's a, it's a short-term thing, okay? Some of these, some of these uh, you know, uh, street knowledge about sex and, 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 and strength and testosterone have a little bit of truth to it, but not a lot. So another, another example of that is if I work out, if I, if I lift weights, I'm going to increase my testosterone. That's actually not true, but it is a little bit true. So what happens is when you're lifting weights, when you're exerting your muscles, in the micro environment of the muscle, if you put little tiny sensors in there, you would see that there's an increase in testosterone within the muscles. But if you measure the blood levels in the circulation, there's no change. So yeah, your muscles will increase testosterone for themselves at that moment while they're exercising, but it, it doesn't measurably change your general levels of testosterone, which are regulating your body all day long, which are important for your mental focus, your sex drive, your sexual function. So that, that's where, yes, it's true a little bit, but it's not true a lot. You get a little weaker from that adrenaline release when you climax, but not for your general health and well-being and strength and longevity. Aaron, you're amazing. I just want to say I, that. I love I'm, this. Oh, this I'm is really class. excited, really excited. Uh, two questions that immediately pumped through my mind and I felt like I was twitching to ask you. One, obviously premature ejaculation because many men struggle with it and it's something that I'm, I, I imagine the advent of porn has had a huge increase in men's ability to prematurely ejaculate. And the other part was, I wonder if you could know or yes, the exact, uh, exact okay. opposite. Okay, go for it. Yeah, can you talk briefly about premature ejaculation? And then and I want to talk about testosterone. I'm dying. And, and if anyone struggling with this, what can they do to slow it down or to kind of? Yeah. To, well, well, let me address. Let me take it in reverse order. Let me address porn. Yes. Um, porn is actually causing a, a suppression in its ability to reach climax. It's making it more and more difficult for men to ejaculate to reach climax, to have satisfying sex, or even to maintain their erections. Wow. And we're talking about young men, even high school age guys, which is crazy to think about. Uh, at least when I was in high school, the idea that, you know, 
I would have trouble climaxing. I couldn't imagine, right? I mean, I didn't even want to go up to the blackboard because I might get a boner or something. <laughs> so, um, you know, and now kids are having trouble getting erections, watching pornography in high school. And that's because it has been shown that frequent viewing of pornography, and by frequent, I mean, you know, several times a week or daily. And there's a lot of people out there who are watching it several times a day because it's just so accessible. I mean, it's, it's right there in your other hand. Uh, so in your phone. <laughs> um, and, uh, and what it's doing is it's causing uh, changes, physical, measurable changes in centers of the brain that are important for your erections and for reaching climax. And it's taking these parts of your brain and it's shrinking them. You can see it on MRIs. They get smaller. And so uh, men who are watching pornography frequently are having trouble not only getting getting it up, but reaching climax, even with masturbation. And rather than inducing premature ejaculation because they're so excited, they're actually less and less excited. It's blunting them. It's overstimulation. It's too much of a good thing. And it's a real problem. And about 20% of high school age guys are reporting some degree of erectile dysfunction or difficulty reaching sexual climax, if you can imagine. But it's a real problem. Fortunately, it is reversible by not watching porn. And it's been shown that if you just stop cold turkey and don't watch porn, after a few months, things start to normalize. Things, things get back to better. The brain centers start to grow back. But it's a real thing. Now, on the other hand, premature ejaculation, it's a, it's, it's a normal situation. It's a normal physiological situation for many men. It's just on the spectrum of how we are sexually. However, we have evolved to a point in our civilization where we utilize sex as a recreation, not just as a means of, you know, our, our species propagating. And so we like to, you know, modulate that normal situation and, 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 and change it. And so we want to last longer. And so there are ways for men with premature ejaculation to be able to have uh, a longer duration of sex. Now, ejaculation is the result of a complex interplay of nerves that are reflexes. And the control center for this is in the lower spine. And so it is a reflex, but you can retrain your nervous system uh, and you can retrain that reflex to kick in later. And so there are techniques such as uh, start, stop, squeeze technique that a uh, behavioral therapist can take a man through. Uh, there's even apps that kind of simulate this technique. Uh, there's the premature uh, uh, ejaculation app, the PEA app that kind of simulates this, this teaching technique. But what it is, is teaching you to get in touch with how the body's feeling as it's getting to that point of no return, and then scaling back. Part of that is the Kegel exercises we talked about. That's one way of doing it. The start-stop technique is another way of doing it, and they, they can be complementary, but way, the way that works is a man and a woman or, or his partner, man and a man, whatever, or a man in himself uh, begins stimulating the, the penis. And before it gets to that point where you know they're going to go, they stop. And if they still can't back down, they squeeze the penis tightly, briskly. It's uncomfortable, but it breaks, it breaks, 
the with, uh, with pleasure. That's squeezing it with their kegel muscle or with their hand? No, 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 with, 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 their, with their hand. Uh, to, to cause a little bit of discomfort, causes a little bit of a release of an adrenaline, <laughs> um, and, it, and it kind of backs them away from going over the edge into climax. And then once they've calmed down, they start again. And then they stop, and then maybe they squeeze. So it's called start, stop, squeeze. And, they, and they, it's like an exercise. And they're able to go longer and longer, kind of like if you practice holding your breath. If you practice holding your breath, you get longer and longer, you know, duration. And eventually you can go dive for abalone. So uh, <laughs> very you know. good. That's, so this that's is, really uh, practical. That's really yeah. practical. That's so really it, it, yeah. And, and, the, and the partner can do it. The partner can, you know, they can make it like a like a tease and, and the partner stimulating him. And then once once they see that they're getting a little too soft, the partner stops and then the partner squeezes. It works best actually in a, in a partnered situation, but you work on that over several months and you, and you do learn to last longer and longer. However, doesn't work for everybody, but it, it actually does work for most or not. Everybody has a partner or not. Everybody wants to take the time. And there are medications that are very effective. Some medications are very, very safe, such as a topical spray, topical spray with lidocaine in it. What that does is it makes the nerves of the penis less sensitive. So, so it takes more stimulation to reach the climax so they can go longer. But that's not effective enough for everybody. And so there are pharmaceutical prescriptions. Uh, one very uh, effective one is in the class of uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, uh, known as uh, Paxil or Prozac. These kinds of pills that many people take for depression uh, they have a side effect and, and men who take these pills for depression have noticed that it's harder to reach a climax. It takes longer. So what doctors do is they take a low dose of these pills and they give them to men with premature ejaculation just for that side effect. But the low right. dose is not really affecting their mood or their, 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 you know, their mental, their mental uh, processes. It's just making them able to last longer. But it's only working while they're taking it. And so, you know, you have to stay on this medication. When you stop it, you'll go back to the, the same ejaculatory pattern that you had naturally. Um, so the start-stop technique or working with behavioral therapists is really the only way to inherently change it, inherently, you know, reverse that. So useful. So really useful. Right. Okay. My last one is I, I'd love to talk to you about testosterone because I remember there was a friend who we used to work with, such a cool dude. And he used to always say that when, I'm, when I hit 40 lads, I'm going to start testosterone therapy and start, you know, taking testosterone. Because he says, as you hit like 35, your testosterone starts to, to, to wane, your, your, your vigor, your vitality, your erections, all these type of things start to kind of dwindle a little bit. And he always said like, well, it's in the big muscle groups. You've got to do lots of squats and it's like, it's all in your like glutes. And that's where you like, that's where you build your testosterone. And I just wondered about testosterone, like it naturally wanes over our lifespan are there things habits which we can do to make it last longer and particularly in terms of our drive our vitality our you know all that stuff yeah no the, those are really important questions and yes um, there are age-related changes with testosterone just as there are age-related changes with our blood vessels uh, you know all of our body tissues um, are going to have age-related changes however that does not mean that when you're 40 you ought to go on testosterone because uh, as, it, as it also doesn't mean that when you're 40, you have to take Viagra to have an erection, right? Um, 
40% of 40 year olds have some degree of erectile dysfunction, but 60% don't. And there are men in my practice who are in their 80s uh, who have testosterone levels as high or higher than guys in their 30s. But that is not true for all men across the board. If you have low testosterone, age-related low testosterone or low testosterone for other reasons, which, which there are, you will benefit from bringing your testosterone up into the normal range. There's no question. It is good for you to have normal levels of testosterone, and it's not so good for you to have low levels of testosterone, even though that might be a natural consequence of aging. But it's not just an age-related formula. When I turn 40, I should start testosterone. When I turn 50, I should start testosterone. Every man over 60 should be on testosterone. Not at all. You need to get a blood test and see what is the level of testosterone in your body. And if your levels are low, then yes, talk to your physician about testosterone replacement therapy. Don't do it through the gym. Don't do it you know, through the internet because although it's not a highly risky therapy, it's not a zero risk therapy. And it is something that does require some kind of routine blood test monitoring that you're not gonna be able to do on your own on the side. Um, so testosterone is very beneficial to men who have low testosterone because the low testosterone situation, if you're walking around with low testosterone, your bones are gonna gradually get weaker. You're gonna be more prone for, for a fractured hip if you fall. You know, you see old guys, they fall down, they break their hip. Well, I mean, young guys don't fall down and break their hip. They just fall down and bruise their hip. They break their hip because the bones are getting weaker. And it's not just because of low testosterone, but testosterone is one of those things that helps preserve bones. Of course, we know it helps with muscle mass. It also helps you keep excess fat off. It's hard to lose weight when you have low testosterone, and it's easy to get more and more overweight when you have low testosterone. Testosterone also helps you regulate your blood sugar. So you can be more prone to become pre-diabetic if your testosterone levels are low. Uh, it also is good for your heart. There's some you know, concern out there that testosterone is gonna give you a heart attack. No, no, it won't. In fact, it's the opposite. Men with low testosterone have worse cardiac profiles than men with normal testosterone. And it's only in very rare circumstances where the heart is extremely weak and they can't and it can't circulate the blood and, and, and there's fluid buildup on the lungs called congestive heart failure. In severe cases like that, taking testosterone might be a risk because it does cause you to increase a little bit of your water weight when you go on testosterone for some men. But for the vast majority of men, it's good for your heart, it's good for your brain, your mental focus and clarity. Of course, it's good for your penis. It's good for the blood vessels in your penis, the ability of the penis to expand and become erect. And of course, you need it for your sexual desire, for your libido. If you don't have normal levels of testosterone, you're unlikely to have much sexual desire. So a whole range of reasons why testosterone is important. And the most important one is your lifespan. And it's been shown that men who have low testosterone and don't correct it to normal have shorter lifespans than men with normal levels of testosterone. But it is not one size fits all. And you need to get blood testing to determine if your testosterone is low and then if you go on testosterone, you need to get periodic blood testing to make sure you're not overshooting or undershooting your dose. Now, testosterone is not a great solution for young guys because it shuts off your own production of testosterone. When you go on testosterone, that's a lifelong treatment because testosterone is shutting yours off. And when you stop taking testosterone, yours stays shuts off 
for several months. It'll take several months for yours to turn back on and get back to where it was before you started. So if you have low testosterone and you go on testosterone, it's pretty much you're going on it for life. Now, not only does it shut off your testosterone, it shuts off your sperm production because the sperm needs the testosterone that's made by your own testicles to form because the sperm is seeing a hundred times higher level of testosterone coming from the testicles right next to it than is circulating in your blood. And when you go on testosterone shots or gels or pills or whatever, you're going to reach normal levels in your blood, but it's going to be hundred times too low for what your sperm needs. So that's why your sperm production shuts off when you go on testosterone. And when you come off testosterone, it'll take several months for it to come back. <clears throat> so for younger guys who want to have families, going on testosterone makes them sterile. And many of them don't realize that. So not a good solution for younger guys. But for young guys who have low testosterone, because there are young guys out there that have low testosterone for one reason or another, um, and, and will benefit from having their testosterone brought up into normal, there are other strategies that can be pursued that aren't just testosterone. Now, some strategies are testosterone plus HCG, but HCG that has to be taken uh, subcutaneously injected every other day. Not like you go to the gym, oh, you know, uh, you go on testosterone, you need to take like a month off and do HCG for a month to keep your balls going. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, or, 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 I, or I cycle, I do a week of HCG and then I do a month of testosterone. That doesn't work. None of that works. It's a very specific ratio that works and it's under medical supervision. So I see so many guys that come from the gym who are trying to have kids because I'm a fertility specialist and they're just amazed that they have no sperm because they were doing what their trainer was telling them to do with the HCG, uh, but they were doing it all wrong. Um, and then there's other strategies such as clomid, a pill, but that can have some side effects for some men. So there's different ways that men with low testosterone wow. can restore it and not compromise their fertility. But men who are past that point in their lives going on testosterone itself is a good and useful therapy, a healthy therapy for men who need it, not for Sense. men who don't. Is there Sense. a natural way of increasing your testosterone without taking pills or without medical, like such as Dave mentioned, doing squats right. and having bigger or eating more vegetables or resting or rest or ejaculating yeah. more, anything or like, like playing so, with your testicles or anything. I don't know. Right. So um, when you work out, you do make more testosterone in those muscles and in the larger muscle groups. But like I said, it doesn't translate to persistent levels throughout the day. However, there are some things that you can do that can improve your testosterone production, um, but they're not, um, you know, they're not miraculous. So for men who really have low testosterone, in many cases, uh, they are going to ultimately require some kind of, of treatment. But if it's on, if, if, if it's not a severe, severely low level, you may actually be able to turn it around. So obesity uh, causes a decrease in testosterone because the testosterone your testicles make get converted in the fat, in your abdominal fat to estrogens. And then the estrogens circle back around to the pituitary gland in your brain, which is the command center. It, the pituitary releases signals called luteinizing hormone to the testicle to make the testicle then produce testosterone. And the estrogens from the fat come around and they hit the pituitary and they make it release less of that signal. So it's this vicious loop. You're making less testosterone and you're and you're being stimulated to make less testosterone because of that fat. So if you're obese 
or overweight and you get lean, your testosterone level may well go up from losing weight. And it's a bit of a catch-22 because it's hard to lose weight if your testosterone is low. And the, the higher your testosterone goes, the easier it becomes to lose weight. But yeah, getting lean, one way to naturally increase your testosterone. Sleep, <clears throat> another way to naturally increase your testosterone. The pituitary gland releases that luteinizing hormone primarily when you're dreaming, when you're in deep REM sleep. And so if your sleep is interrupted and you're not getting a lot of that REM sleep, you're not releasing as much of the luteinizing hormone and your testosterone levels will be lower. Guys who have sleep apnea condition where they're constantly uh, uh, having an obstructed airway while they're asleep, they're snoring and they're not getting enough oxygen. What happens is all night long, they're, they're constantly waking up, not to a conscious level, to a subconscious level, but they're, they're not getting into their REM sleep all night long. Or, or night shift workers who have to work through the night, even though they sleep in the day, they don't get the same quality of sleep. They don't get the same amount of sleep. So people like this, people or people who just deliberately don't get enough sleep because they're burning the candle on both ends. They're high powered. They're constantly doing this and that. These people have been shown to have lower testosterone levels. And when they get a good night's sleep consistently, their testosterone levels can come back up to normal. So getting a good night's sleep and being lean, and you're lean because of how you eat, right? And how you exercise. <clears throat> and it's interesting, but vegans or people who are on predominantly plant-based diets do have higher testosterones. But, but they also have higher sex hormone binding globulin. Sex hormone binding globulin is a, is a protein in the blood that keeps the testosterone stuck to it. It binds the sex hormone. It binds the testosterone. So the testosterone can't work, you know, and do its magic in, in the body tissues. And we have that as a way of regulating ourselves. It's sort of like the breaks. It, it, it's, it's the titration. It's the fine balance that our body's able to do with this sexual hormone binding globulin to keep our testosterone levels that is active as sort of an optimal level. And as our testosterone increases, typically our sexual hormone binding globulin increases to sort of keep that regulation in place. So vegans have higher levels of total testosterone, but they're also gonna have higher levels of sex hormone binding globulin. So at the end, the net amount of testosterone that's available in their system is the same as omnivores. But the real take home message is contrary to popular misconception, vegans do not have lower testosterone than omnivores. They don't have lower testosterone. So eating plants, doesn't give you lower levels of testosterone and eating meat doesn't give you higher levels of testosterone. In fact, apples to apples, total testosterone, total testosterone vegans are higher, but bioavailable, it's similar. Wow. Jeez, that's so Aaron, interesting. You are, you are so phenomenal. good with the science. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, really I am a doctor. With- <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know that. You're not just a doctor, you're a urologist and a fertility specialist. So yeah, you've been, I you're feel like I, books. Yeah, you're amazing. <laughs> um, it, it, so your book, it's called The Penis Book. And it sounds like yeah, it's, it's the guy. I just so happen to have a copy of it here. Oh, I got that blurry thing going on. I got it. Let me get rid of the blur. Let's go. Oh my gosh. Where is, I don't even know where my thing is. Well, I love the aubergine in the front of it. I think it's there brilliant. You've got gosh, an emoji yeah, so aubergine. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so it's called the penis book. And uh, yeah, we can kind of get it in and out. I hate this uh, background filter thing. So yeah, the penis book. And it's everything you'd want to know about the penis. 
and and it, it it takes a deep dive into a lot of stuff we talked about here today. You'll get a lot of that same information, but it covers uh, other things as well. It talks about um, how the medications work, uh, surgeries, uh, diseases, sexually transmitted diseases, other things we didn't talk about, like Peyronie's disease, if you have a bent erection. Um, and it even gets into things like uh, gender um, and gender reassignment surgery and gender identity, um, uh, pop culture, all kinds of stuff in there. But really, I think it's an important book for guys. The younger, the better, because the more you know about how all this works and how to keep it working and what to do when it doesn't, you know, the better you're going to be going forward. And I think it's a great book for women um, because it's good to know how your man is working. Um, and and what to watch out for and what's normal and what and what not to be anxious about and a lot of couples will read this book together uh, and and get benefit from it so the penis book it's available on Amazon and other fine booksellers <laughs> <laughs> I love your expression it's the perfect book for anyone with a penis or likes penises that's right exactly and the book oh thank you. I was just gonna say the book is actually out in a few languages um, it's out in uh, uh, Italian, Dutch, Turkish, and it recently came out in Chinese. So, wow, uh, that's a big yeah. market, China. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was very, I was very gratified to see that. It came out a couple months ago in Chinese. What's it called um, in Chinese? I can't pronounce it, uh, <laughs> but it, it's something. I, it translates roughly to um, you know, penis talk, and. Okay. Uh, instead of an eggplant, the cover has a banana uh, okay. because because the eggplant really isn't, you know, the emoji for penis uh, in, in that uh, in that culture. And the banana made more sense. And in fact, when I got the cover from the publisher and I saw this eggplant, on it, I was like, what? Because in urology, in, in our in our field, we have uh, what's called the eggplant sign. And this is a this is a medical diagnostic sign that your penis has been fractured. So if a guy breaks his penis during sex, the blood rushes out of the chambers, but gets trapped by the overlying skin and it swells up and it looks like an eggplant. <laughs> it is dramatic. It is horrible. And we call it the eggplant sign. And so when I saw them put an eggplant on the cover book, I was like, what? <laughs> Why are we doing this? And uh, and I showed it to my 20-year-old son. He's like, ah, that's perfect. That's a great cover. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he explained to me the eggplant emoji, which I had no idea because I wasn't like texting eggplants to my wife of 25 years. Then I learned, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's a good thing. But you know, I did I had one patient who found a copy of, of the book in their local library filed in the cooking section. So apparently <laughs> that librarian was older than me. So that's, <laughs> that's brilliant. brilliant. That's great fun. That was great crack. Really, Thanks really so good. much, Aaron. You really are. You're, you have oh, an yeah. ability to talk science with humor and entertain um, immature boy talk, which we tend to enjoy all well, time. It has to go with yeah. it. It has to go with it. It's a fun. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. No, it's yeah, fun. Yeah. And you guys are great. The, you know, it's so fun to watch you play off each other and the energy. It's it's very very uh, exciting and appealing to watch. So I'm I'm really uh, happy to be a part of your podcast. Thank you. I hope you really enjoyed that. I found that so interesting, fascinating, and I still had so many more questions I wanted to talk to. You know, particularly myths that I wanted busting. I just thought, what a gentleman! What a perfect ability to be. 
incredibly knowledgeable and scientific and respect the medical literature and also be such a laugh and hang out with the lads and talk all things willies. Yeah, I really, I really hope you enjoyed that. Um, whether you've got a penis or you like penises or you know someone with a penis, I hope you got something from it. Um, yeah, as as um, Dr. Aaron was saying there that he he has a book called The Penis Book, so do check that if you're interested. And um, yeah, if you're if you really enjoyed this, please share it on social media. We'd love to get this message out to more people. I think it's so important that we all learn more about this. I would have loved to learn know this earlier when I was in my 20s or earlier, really. Um, so yeah, please share it with more people. Um, and lastly, just to finish up, if you'd like to support this podcast, our new book is out. It's called The Veg Box. Uh, and by purchasing it, it will help the podcast. So thanks, Mel. Anyway, lots of love. Wishing you a good day. Bye. Bye-bye. 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 B